Are you kidding me? I mean, can you imagine, can you even begin to imagine the circumstances surrounding how God has done this? You know, I was talking to the executive team this week, given the information that you just got from Chris, I mean, it's astounding. I mean, we were about a million dollars short of this land purchase going and then we were just about to maybe get some last momentum and yet it was still going to be a little dicey and then we hit this coronavirus and now you know sometimes we sit around the team sit around and being on these zoom calls and <clears throat> wondering are, are are we still the church i mean is this <clears throat> is still this still a going operation here because you know it's been so difficult it's been how many days i don't know how many days since we've last met and then this issues with the city potentially and this and then at the last minute oh, oh now it's maybe in front of us but we're still you know a uh, significant amount short and then the day the next day i mean folks this is a god thing i mean i hope this is a seminal moment in the life of church at the red door where we can look back and say at every step look what god has done and yet i don't want us to miss this moment I, I want us to. I want each of you that have been participating or are part of this church to have this faith moment where God has come through at the last minute. I might even preach a sermon on this soon, but at the last minute, it answers why prayer. Why does God take us to the final hour and then come through in the clutch? It seems like rarely early, never late. And yet, here again, God has showed up in such a powerful way. Imagine a church that's a little over three years old, and already God has provided this uh, for our future. It's absolutely amazing. So why don't you let me open in prayer, and we'll get going on the second part of, is this the end of the world? Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for, Lord, I just thank you for our people. And even people online, Lord, that have become part of this community, as we'll see today with Tim and Allegra Church, Lord, that are extensions of what you're doing here in the Coachella Valley and already have been recipients of your grace, Lord. So be with us this morning, Lord. Inspire. Give me the right words, Lord. Uh, redirect me as you see fit and let me give, me the, give me the power and the insight to be able to communicate to our body and those online, Lord, what you want to communicate uh, during this these difficult times. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. So last week, uh, if you haven't gone back, you have to go back and listen. If you haven't already, go back and listen to it because it's answering this question a lot of people are asking, are these the signs of the times? Is this the end of the world? And last week we looked at, if you'll remember, three super signs. Number one, Israel got their land back and Jerusalem is no longer being, you know, uh, trampled by the Gentiles. Jerusalem in the Six-Day War in 1967 got access and, and the rights to, uh, over Jerusalem, which is an amazing fulfillment of what Jesus had talked about very clearly uh, before he ascended back to the right hand of the Father. Number two, the gospel is being preached around the world. And, uh, and Jesus said before he came back, the gospel is going to go to the, every tribe, every tongue. It's going to go completely around the world. I can't imagine what those disciples thought. They got, we're a small little, at one point, they were kind of considered a sect of Judaism. 
uh, kind of an offshoot. They believed in a different Messiah. How is this going to go to the ends of the earth? And then, of course, God does an amazing thing through Saul, who would, he, who would rename Paul. And the Apostle Paul, was his very call on his life was to go to the Gentiles, which is an amazing fulfillment of Scripture, as we'll see again this morning. And then finally, we see this restoration of the Jewish people in Jesus that I believe that many other theologians down through the histories, uh, through the history of the church have believed that God was going to do something amazing before Jesus comes back. Not somewhere after the rapture or something. No, now that God is beginning the process of spiritual restoration in Jesus among ethnic descendants blood descendants of the very first Jew who is Abraham. In other words, his promises to Abraham that through his seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, was also going to culminate in his own descendant, his own line, the, the literal, physical descendants of Abraham, not by faith, which I am, but his physical descendants are going to turn and see Jesus. And then Jesus said, and then I'll come back when they give me the kind of reception that they had given me uh, chanting Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what we looked at this week. And now I told you, well, do we have any role in this? This is all, this is all wonderful and we can understand maybe this, these are the super signs of the end of times. But what is there any role that I play at all? And by the way, let me just, let me just be clear. I think if we, as we look back over church history, there was the, the apostolic church, and obviously Paul had it right. I mean, he was being given direct instructions from Jesus himself. Paul declared, I have seen the risen Lord. And, and so he got this. He had this experience of even going into heaven. He, was, he said, I don't know whether it was in my body or not, but I went into the third heaven and I saw things that were extraordinary. And, and what? Well, he was unpacking, and he was the perfect person to do it unpacking the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament, what many Jewish people call the Tanakh. He was unpacking them to give us a picture that Jesus was all over the pages of the Old Testament. And we're going to see that again very clearly this morning. I think this doctrine of the salvation of the Jewish people as the culminating act of all redemptive history is something that is even now being reclaimed by the church. And it is a slow, arduous process. Many in the church just still don't see this. But I think things like, you know, the doctrine of the Trinity that was heavily fought over early on in church history or the doctrine of salvation by faith that happened, you know, in 1517, as we alluded to last week with the Great Reformation, or the sovereignty of God or the apostolic model of church governance or separation of church and state or the baptism of believers. I, I think all these things that were kind of in place in the apostolic church and was a were a clear understanding by the early apostles, I think this truth is going to be reclaimed. I really believe this with all my heart, and I have seen it over the last 10 years growing substantially that people are like, okay, well, this thing called Jews for Jesus, this, this movement, I, I, what's going on in Israel right now with the Israel College of the Bible and the hundreds of millions of hits we're getting on our videos uh, that describe and uh, Jewish men and women saying Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, is an amazing fulfillment, and in my view, the final super sign that are you know close. What is close? Is it a generation? Is it two hundred years? Is it maybe in my lifetime? I don't know. 
But there will be a point, as Paul said in Romans 11, when all of Israel shall be saved. And we're going to look at that a little bit more this morning. So those were the super signs that we talked about last week. Let's press on. Here was the question that I posed when we finished last week. Well, is there anything we can do about this? Is there, is there any role that we play as the church, both Jew and Gentile, in seeing Jewish men and women come to know Jesus is the Messiah and not convert from being a Jew to being a Christian, but actually uh, just continue in their Jewishness, even uh, believing in a Jewish Messiah. Why is that so strange? That's what happened in the early church. That's what happened to approximately 20,000 Jewish men and women. They didn't lose their Jewishness. They just believed into the Jewish Messiah because he was a fulfillment in their minds of everything that had been written. And many of them in the early church had seen him raised from the dead. Do we play a role? Well, Second Peter's, uh, Peter's second letter, listen to what he says in verses 11 and 12. He says, since all these things, talking about what we talked about last week, all the, you know, everything's going to, there's going to be a meltdown. We know that, that there are going to be new heavens and new earth. He's, he said, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for, Jesus return here, looking for and hastening. This is an operative word here. The coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. He uses this word, this Greek word hastening, which really means to, to speed on, to, to urge to the end. Is there something we can do as the church uh, in fulfilling what God has already said was going to take place? Is there some role we play? Well, I believe the answer to that is a clear yes. Now, the first super sign, Israel getting its uh, land back and, and this, this picture of Jerusalem no longer being uh, trampled underfoot by the Gentiles that we, we get in from 1967, look, that was very clearly just a sovereign act of the living God. There, there's no human being that could have pulled that off. That's the most unprecedented thing in human history. Unprecedented that a nation would lose its its land and then almost 2,000 years later actually regain it. Why? Well, because most people, if they've been thrown out of their land, they assimilate. They they become Americans or they become, you know, wherever they wherever they move to, wherever they uh, where they immigrate to, they, they become part of that nation. They lose their ethnic identity very often over time, certainly over 2,000 years, but, but not the Jews. In fact, in Jeremiah, it said that uh, they will not lose their identity. They will maintain being a nation before me forever. And that has been fulfilled in an amazing way. But then to come back and actually regain land, even 50 years later, people don't regain their land. And now 2,000 years, almost 2,000 years, they regain their land. Look, did, did Ezekiel see this? Yeah, Ezekiel's prophesying about 600 years before the time of Jesus. Listen to what the prophet Ezekiel said. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel. It's not because you're the good guys. I'm not doing this because you're law-abiding, God-fearing, worshiping community that I created you to be. He said, no. He says, it's not for you, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name. I'm doing this sovereignly. It's an act I will pull off at some point in human history which you have profaned among the nations where, where you went. In other words, you were going to be spit out of the land. 
and you are not going to be following me. Uh, uh, you, you, you're going to fail, and you have failed. You've failed my law. You've failed me in all these ways. He said, he goes on to say, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations, catch this, then the nations will know that I'm the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. In other words, the nations are going to look at this and they're going to say, it's going to vindicate God's name when what happens? Well, the next verse, verse 24 for I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Now, some try to just take this as symbolic language or figurative language. I, I would agree with that. I probably would have adopted that. But I've seen it with my own two eyes. This is happening in our lifetimes. Did you know that just recently now, over half those that identify as being Jewish around the world, over half now, are back in the land of Israel? against all odds. This is, we live in unprecedented times. And now, many Jews are beginning to see that Jesus is the Messiah. Again, we're in the early stages of this final super sign, but let me tell you something, these things are coming together. Now, the question is, do we play a role at all? Well, I think we partner with God in the second two of these super signs. Clearly, God is doing this. This is God's power. It's his providence. It's his plan. He's pulling this off. None, none of us are ever going to pat ourselves on the back and say, you know, we, we really, we did a lot. I mean, we're partnering with God. He's empowering us to do this. But obviously, well, the gospel going to the ends of the earth, that has taken millions of lives. Right now, there are thousands of missionaries, thousands of hundreds of thousands of missionaries and pastors and, and people just like many of you at Church at the Red Door that are bringing their gifts, stewarding their gift, giving financially, being involved, uh, uh, really sharing with their neighbors. Maybe some of you have invited a neighbor over to your house just to, just to watch this this morning. Somehow, some way, you are part of the Great Commission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But then the, the second part of this is, well, what about, what about the restoration of the Jewish people uh, as the final super sign? Is God partnering with the church? Is God partnering with the church? Does he want to partner with people to see the final act of redemptive history before Jesus comes back? In my view, does he want to see this happen in partnership with the church? I believe so. Let's go back and finish that Ezekiel 36 passage. And it involves us. Verse 25. It says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, speaking of the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idolatry. Many of my Jewish friends, they don't even believe in God. They, they, they say, they, I gave up that. We don't think about the God of our forefathers. We're Jewish you know, in terms of our culture and things, but many, many don't even believe. Now, many do, but the far majority of Jewish people today, ah, they've kind of moved on uh, from this. This was the God of their ancient forefathers. No Messiah came in their minds. There wasn't really anything there, and, but they've still maintained their ethnic identity. It says, it goes on to say, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Now, that brings up New Testament, New Covenant kind of language, new heart, new spirit. 
They could have imagined that Pentecost, so one of their spring festivals, was going to actually be the fulfillment uh, of exactly what's happening here and set the precedent for all of church history, both Jew and Gentile, that they would get a new heart, circumcised heart, and a new spirit within them. And I'm going to remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. That's not just the law. It's actually now we understand from a new covenant perspective being led by the spirit. It goes on to say, and you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. So you will be my people and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness and I will call for the grain and multiply it and I will not bring a famine on you. We're going to talk about that in a minute. You're not going to be exiled anymore because of a famine, either spiritually or literal famine. I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field so that you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. There's coming a day and it is in our time. This is not, it's in the future. There, it's already happening. It's been happening. There are Jewish men and women all over the world who've bowed the knee and said, we have failed the God of our forefathers. We, we've, we've rejected the very Messiah and they will loathe themselves in their own eyes. You say, well, that's terrible. That sounds racist. It's anybody has to come through the cross. I, me too. I mean, it's not just the Jewish people. I loathed myself when I began to understand the law and its indictment of my lack of holiness and my and my rebellion against God, I loathe myself. Well, this is saying, well, many Jewish people are going to do exactly the same thing. And again, he says, I'm not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Now catch this. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of being a desolation in the sight of everyone who passes by. Now don't think of this as being some moment in time, this one day, one hour, when all the Jewish people look at the Messiah. This is a process. And if you've been with me to Israel, then you know that this is a process. Their drip irrigation, which they've now exported all over the world, this, this nation of Israel, people are shocked Every time they go with us to Israel, when we take a trip, they're shocked at the beauty and the agriculture and the fruit trees and the, the produce and the flowers. and the, they, They're amazed, especially when we're in northern Israel or Jerusalem. I mean, there's mountains. It looks like you're in Colorado somewhere. Cold water coming down through, feeding the, the Jordan River and these beautiful trout in there for you trout fishermen. It's amazing. In fact, they call it the Garden of Eden. It's amazing. And they will say this desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are fortified and inhabited. And these are happening in tandem with their spiritual restoration. It's a process. What happens then? Well, then the nations are left round about. You will know that I am the Lord. And I've rebuilt the ruined places and planted that which was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it. Is God doing this? God's the one who brought them back. God's the one who is doing this. But is he partnering with the church? Does the church have a role at this place in human history 
to make sure that in deference and in humility, not as the church has done before. If you know anything about church history, the horrors. These were not men and women who knew Jesus. Let me just be clear. Some of these men and women who murdered and, and, and like the Spanish Inquisitions and all the horrors through church history, this is the spirit of Antichrist. This is the spirit of Satan himself. Murder and, and all. That had nothing to do with the spirit of Jesus. Let's just be really clear. Church history, and many Jews say, I don't want anything to do with Christians because they're, they're angry and hostile and they've persecuted us for thousands of years. And in many places, there, there is no place for the church to run and hide except to say that those driven by the Holy Spirit would have never entered into those kind of contracts to annihilate the Jewish people under the auspices of being the church. Are we going to walk in great deference and humility and love and compassion? Well, I want to tell you a story now that I believe will answer that very question. The book of Ruth, just to let you know, the book of Ruth is a strange book to be included, in my view, in the Tanakh, in the, the, the Jewish chronicles of their own history. It's a strange book to be included. It seems to make the, uh, the hero here seems to be one of their arch enemies, a Moabite woman. The, the name of the book, Ruth, is a Moabitess, right? In fact, Israel was called not to have anything to do with the Moab, right? Now, they were called not to intermarry with the Canaanites. Now, Moab was not part of the Canaanites, but then they were saying Moab wouldn't let us come through when we came through the Red Sea and wouldn't let us go through their land. And so there was a a curse down to the 10th generation on Moab. I mean, they were the enemy from an Israelitish perspective. And it seems to put her up as one of the heroines of the story. Strange. What's the purpose of this story? I mean, they, they, and I'll tell you the basic story in a minute, but what's the purpose of this? In fact, it seems like good guy, bad guy in some places. It seems like there's almost racism in various places. In fact, if you think back about the, uh, the atheist, atheist Isaac Asimov, he said the Bible when read properly, now catch this, the Bible when read properly is the most, catch this, is the most potent force, the most potent force for atheism ever conceived. The Bible read properly. No, I would, I would correct him and say the Bible read properly which is through the lens of God's restoration through the cross and through the Messiah. Old Testament from Genesis 1 all the way to the conclu conclusion of the New Testament in Revelation 22. Through the lens of Jesus the Messiah, and we're going to see it very clearly in the story of Ruth, read properly is the great, greatest and most potent force for belief in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let me be clear. Isaac Asimov had it completely wrong. The Bible, when read uh, superficially, without understanding the cross being the pivotal moment that the Old Testament pointed to and that the New Testament pointed back to, that moment, read through the lens of that, is the most potent force for belief in Jesus ever in the history of mankind. So, sorry, Isaac, but you had it utterly and completely wrong. So, what is the story? What is the? I'm going to give you the general outline, and then we're going to go back and pick this apart briefly, and I'm going to show you some things where I think God was speaking to us. How would we hasten the day of the Lord? I think it's embedded in this very story of Ruth. 
So as we look at this story, what is it? Well, here it is. There were some Ephraimites, which just means that they were from Bethlehem, Elimelech, and then Naomi, his wife Naomi, and then they had Malin and Chilion, uh, depending on your pronunciation, and there are various pronunciations. Those aren't the exact Hebrew uh, pronunciations of those names, but those are how we generally uh, say Malin and Chilion, and they, they were there, and there was a famine in the land. Now, you know from past stories that when there's a famine, trust God, trust God, don't flee, don't, don't be exiled to another nation. But they did. For whatever reason, when we're not told uh, that this was during the time of the judges, so this is just prior to the time of the kings that starts with, start with Saul uh, and then David. But this is, so this is towards the end of the time of the judges. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, you, they, they, there's a famine on the land. So what do they do? They, they flee. They go into exile. And where do they go? They go to Moab. Now, if you know anything about the story of Moab, who, where did the Moabites come from? Well, when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot was uh, allowed to leave. His wife turned around and became the pillar of salt as she looked back. And there's a great teaching in that as well. But then his daughters were afraid. And so there was an incestuous relationship. Yeah, this is all Bible stuff. Incestuous relationship. And his oldest daughter slept with her father and they became the Moabites. Their son, this is Moab, uh, was the product of this incestuous relationship. And they were always at odds. They were always a picture of being uh, against the plans of God. And again, as I alluded to earlier, there had been a curse on Moab for 10 generations when they wouldn't let Israel, when they came out of slavery in Egypt, they wouldn't let him pass through their land. And also his younger sister, uh, the younger sister of Lot, uh, younger daughter of Lot, also slept with the father, and that became uh, Ammon, Ammon, and they became the Ammonites, also against the plans of God. And uh, again, much could be said about that, but that's who the Moabites were. So they went to the land of Moab, and they lived there for 10 years. Both uh, uh, Malin and Chilion took wives for themselves, Orpah and Ruth, and they were there 10 years. But eventually, all the men die in the story. It's really a crazy story. Elimelech dies, and Malin dies and Chilean dies and now there's Orpah and Ruth and Naomi and Naomi gets word that somehow if they the, the famine is over and God has somehow re-blessed the nation of Israel so she decides to go back and Orpah and Ruth are there and he says you need to go back I, I can't raise up I'm too old I can't raise up there's not time for me to raise up sons for you to marry uh, you realize the women's future was very much tied into who she was married to just for her well-being. It's so, so important. There wasn't this idea of just women just kind of running their own, having a life of uh, being a businesswoman and never getting married. It just wasn't possible that a woman was completely tied. Her well-being was tied to who she was going to be able to marry and would she be provided for. And so Ruth has, and well, I'm going to have this reading in a minute, but I want to give you an overview of the story. Ruth says, no, I'm going to go with you. They go back. They have this interaction with this, uh, this redeemer, this kind of mystical figure, Boaz, and eventually things turn out okay. And that's kind of the general gist overview. And I want to go back and break this down because this is incredibly instructive for us in the 21st century. Anybody who would say, look, I would like to at least play, it may not be your primary calling in any way, but I always want to I always want to have an awareness of what God is doing in the earth. And I'm telling you right now, what God is doing is he is pouring out his spirit. He is fulfilling Ezekiel 36. He brought them back to their land. 
And now he's pouring out his spirit and giving them a new heart. And can we play some kind of role in that? So let's go back to chapter one and just take a quick look at this. Okay, so there's a famine and all the men are dead and that's, that's kind of where we leave it except for this one glorious statement that Ruth makes. Orpah says, okay, I'll go back to my people. And Ruth says, no way, I am gonna leave my, it's kind of almost this Abrahamic picture. I'm gonna leave my home country. I'm gonna leave my people and I'm going to go to a place that I don't understand completely, but uh, I believe that God is there, and she has this, and it's popular, popular. You would have heard this. If, you, if you've been around the Bible at all, you would have heard this many times, and I'm going to have our precious Tim and Allegra Church from Washington read this portion of Scripture, and let me just say, Tim uh, came to know Jesus while we were in Israel, and then Allegra and their sons went back, and then and then she got baptized a few. Well, I won't. I won't ruin it. Let Let me let you let Tim and Allegra both read this passage, Ruth one sixteen seventeen, and just tell you a little bit of their story. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, hello, Church of the Red Door family. Uh, this is Tim and Allegra Church coming to you from Bellevue, Washington. We're just on the outskirts of Seattle. Um, we don't know everybody down there. We come down once twice a year. Uh, to the Church at the Red Door. We have been to Israel with Jeff, um, so we know a lot of you. Um, I was there in 2014. Where I was baptized in uh, 2018. Um, our whole family went on the trip, Allegra, myself, and the boys. Uh, Allegra and our oldest son was baptized at that time, and we have the privilege of being able to baptize our youngest son about two weeks ago. We're very blessed. Um, we're here to read Ruth 1, 16 and 17. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely if even death separates you and me. Back to you, Jeff. Thank you, Tim and Allegra. I, I love, I tell you what, I love this family. I absolutely love this family. Laura and I had the privilege to have dinner with them last time they were down in the desert uh, before all the crazy stuff hit during season. I think it was last fall. And uh, I just really just care so much for them. I have watched God do extraordinary things in their life. Uh, Allegra is the daughter, by the way, of, of, of the Moody's who are part of Church at the Red Door. And we just, we just love these families. And so thank you for reading that. You did a beautiful job, Allegra, beautiful job. So what did we get from this? Well, here's a couple things. First of all, Ruth doesn't exactly know what she's getting herself into. She's with a beleaguered you know, Jewish woman who says, don't call me Naomi anymore, call me Mara, which means bitter. The Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. I mean, she's, she's not going back with a whole lot of faith. She left without much faith. She obviously didn't have a huge uh, passionate love for her God because she told these two girls, her daughter-in-laws, go back to the gods of your forefathers. I mean, why, what... What Jewish person would ever do that? Go back to your gods. Your gods are just as good as my gods. Sometimes that spirit still exists. I, I have a precious friend of mine who's now passed, but a, a Jewish man who came to know Jesus named Dennis, 
And Dennis said, I tried all the other gods. I tried everything. I tried, I, I, I went down every path. I explored everything. I looked at all the foreign gods. And eventually he finds Jesus as the Messiah and brought him back and to the God of his forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This was a little bit of what was in Naomi. And then now notice, this is important in my view, the Bible simply says at the conclusion of chapter one, that it was at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, I think this has some meaning for us, and I'll describe this a little bit later. So, Ruth chapter one, verse 22, let me read this. So Naomi returned, and with her, Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Just wanted you to see that, at the beginning of the barley harvest. I think when the Jewish people, let me just say, I'll say it right up front. I said I'd say it later. I'll say it now. I think when the Jewish people returned to the land, and when they began to be reconnected with their long-awaited Messiah, or in some cases just the Messiah that they never really considered anymore. They didn't really think in those constructs. But they're confronted as Jesus begins to pour out his spirit and give a new heart in this land, a long process that we're seeing and we're part of. Even Church of the Red Door, very much a part of this process. Then what happened? Well, it's the beginning of a great harvest. It's always uh, not only the harvest of the Jewish people, but as we saw last week, I think as many of the early Puritans and many other theologians have thought through the centuries, not the least of which Charles Spurgeon I read last week, there's going to be the great harvest at the end of time will be in partnership as the Jews come and, be, and understand Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. It's going to be commensurate with the, a great harvest around the world. And again, that's how we read Romans 11 last week. Now, chapter two. Basically, Naomi's just going, look, I don't know how we're gonna make it. They get back. I've got a distant relative. So think of Naomi. I've got a distant relative and maybe he can help us or you. So why don't you go to his field? And so Ruth essentially, uh, how, can I go? Where should I go? I wanna glean in fields. You know, part of the uh, law, which this is a beautiful picture, is that if you had property and there were poor aliens or others that uh, poor among you, they could come and don't glean to the very edges of your field. In other words, leave a little bit around the corners. This will provide for you. If you just leave a little bit for those who are in great need so that they can at least survive. I mean, it's not a, you know, it's not a five-star dinner or anything, but Leave a little bit on the edges of when you're doing your uh, agrarian stuff. Leave a little bit around the edges so that they can glean. And so Naomi basically tells her that we have this distant re relative. And uh, why don't you go and see what would happen there? And she does. Now, something very interesting happens. This is now Boaz. So Naomi doesn't obviously doesn't really know Boaz, is aware that he's a distant relative. So Naomi is very much a representative type of just the Jewish people today. They've come out of exile, they've come back into their land, and they know there's a distant relative somewhere there, but they're not sure, and maybe, and all of a sudden they are here with a Gentile, and they instruct the Gentile, in this case Ruth, her daughter-in-law, well, why don't you go and see if you can glean in his field? And something very amazing happens. This Boaz figure notices... Ruth, they had heard about that this Moabite had come back with that. They'd heard the story. I mean, these were, this was in New York City where you didn't know what anybody else was doing. They had heard the story that she had come back and she, he noticed her. Now, 
Boy, this grabs me because I think about, this is a picture, Boaz becomes a type of Jesus in the story. He's the kinsman redeemer, as we'll discuss in a minute. He notices the Gentile. The Bible's very clear. It simply says he takes notice. He gives her an offer to stay, which he's given if you're a Gentile and Jesus made that offer to you, or if you don't know Jesus, he's making that offer you today. And he tells the servants to make sure that he's taken care of. Look, I, that happened to me, you know, 25, 30 years ago. And it's been true. Jesus took notice of me. He said, make sure, she's make sure he's taken care of. And he's still doing that among Gentiles. He did it even there, there in the time of his own ministry. He would encounter the Syrophoenician woman, the Roman centurion. I've never seen such great faith. He took notice of Jew and Gentile, even though his primary ministry during his time of earth was to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, as he was very clear. But this grabs me. Here's the kinsman redeemer taking notice of a Gentile. And so what happens at that point? Well, Ruth 2, verse 10 and 13, now catch this. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, okay, so this is Ruth, why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me? I'm a foreigner. I'm not part of the God of Abraham. I'm not part of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm a foreigner. Have you ever asked that? Have you ever, have you ever had the humility to think, well, my, you know, we're a Christian nation, all this? Have you ever had that humility to say, well, why is Jesus taking notice of me? Isn't he the Jewish Messiah? Boaz replied, says, all that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of her, your husband has been fully reported to me and how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. Just the same call that Abraham had had. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. Do you have the humility? I'm just asking, if you're, if you're not Jewish here and you're watching this and you've, you've begun to follow Jesus and you've had your life provided for spiritually and eternally and, and even in very real ways right here in the seen realm, do you have the humility to go, well, Jesus, how did you even see me? I thought you are the Jewish Messiah. Do you have that kind of humility? I'm, I'm going to ask. Now, not only was Ruth provided for but then she was sure to take food. Now, this is operative for us. How do we hasten the day? She was, she was called. She immediately took the food that she got in her relationship with Boaz, a picture of Jesus, and she would make sure to take it back to Naomi. Are you taking some of the food that you derive from your relationship with Jesus in a figurative way? And then are you taking it to Jewish friends and expressing to them that Jesus has transformed your life? When I do that, I feel a little bit like Ruth. And I have many precious Jewish relationships. And I just say, look, this is some of the food. This is some of the things that I've gotten from this Boaz figure, this kinsman redeemer, this, this man named Jesus. Uh, and let, now we move on to chapter three. Okay, so this, this is gonna get good, folks. This, this gets really good. So now Naomi is, okay, let me guide you into your relationship with this Boaz. We don't know him that well. I don't have, obviously, a very intimate relationship with him. He's kind of a distant relative, as we'll see in chapter four. 
we know we're related, but we really don't know him that well, but I have enough knowledge of how to have you go to him. Look, this is what this is what this Bible is, right? The Naomi's of the world. Uh, now, obviously, these were these were people who loved the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, and they eventually would have a very powerful relationship. But the Jews have given us, as Paul says in Romans nine, to them was given the covenants and the promises and the glory. The Jews got everything, and they have shared it with me, a Ruth type figure, a Gentile. And now I have it, and they've given this to me. I owe them a debt. I owe the Jewish people a debt. They've given me everything that's given life not only to me, but to Laura and our kids and, and generations after us and generations preceding us. We didn't have anything. We were lost and without God in the world, Ephesians 2 says. And they, they, gave, they, they gave us some instruction. Ruth chapter three, catch this. Here's, here's the instruction. Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, my daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Now is not Boaz our kinsman with whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself. See, what, this, what the Jews have expressed to me through the centuries is you, you need to wash yourself. Right, And we do that not by just cleaning up our act, by be going to the cross and being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We're washed through the water of the word. I mean, Jews gave us this. Anoint yourself. That's the Holy Spirit. And Old Testament and New, the Holy Spirit was a very important aspect of being able to come before God. Put on your best clothes, as I alluded to, and go down to the threshing floor but do not make yourself known to the man until he is finished eating and drinking. It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. In other words, do this in humility. Do you know who you're dealing with here? Be absolutely, just prostrate yourself and, and be before the Lord in humility. This is what we get. This is our understanding through the Jewish people. And he will tell you what you shall do. And she said, all that you say, I will do. See, I came to Jesus. Well, yeah, sure. There was a Gentile person who shared and my mother prayed and a lot of different things. But where do we get all this information to the Jewish people? Through the Naomi's of the world, we have gotten our instruction on how to come to Jesus. And then, of course, Boaz then, after this happens, instructs Ruth not to go. And then he says, very important, he says, catch this, Boaz says, go to your mother-in-law. Don't go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Again, here's, if we understand these as types, and I believe this is why the book of Ruth was written. Ruth represents the Gentiles. Naomi represents the Jewish people in exile and now coming back to their land. And, and Boaz clearly, and, and all theologians agree with this, he is the kinsman redeemer, a picture of Jesus, as we'll see in a minute redeeming all of creation. And what is Jesus, if Boaz is Jesus, what does Boaz say? What would Jesus say to us today? What is he telling us through the book of Ruth? Well, go back to the Naomi's of the world, but don't go empty-handed. Take her something. Take her some of the things that you've received from me. And I think that's the gospel. And then Boaz, at the conclusion of chapter three, simply says that he's going to redeem Ruth. Now, this is kind of hard to understand. Let me set this up a little bit. 
Evidently, we have to read between the lines a little bit, Elimelech had some land that would have been probably passed through inheritance to, uh, to Malin and Chilion, and, but they're dead. So now, it was, Leviticus 25.25 says that if that happens, then you have to take on the responsibility. If you're the Redeemer, you have to take on the responsibility of the, the, the deceased spouses if they're still alive as well. So just understand that, that Boaz knows that if he's going to redeem uh, Elimelech's land, it's going to come with the necessity to marry Ruth. And of course, he wants to marry Ruth, just like Jesus wants to marry you if you're part of the church, or if you're not, he still wants a marital relationship with you. We're the bride, he's the groom. 1 Peter 1, listen, 18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed, what is this redeeming process? Well, we know Jesus is the redeemer, but Boaz now becomes the redeemer, the kinsman redeemer. You weren't redeemed with perishable things like gold and silver, this is 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as the lamb of unblemished and spotless the blood of Christ. In the New Testament, we know Jesus is the redeemer. In the Old Testament, Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. We get this grand picture. Look, Boaz, God is screaming during the time of Judges, I'm going to send the ultimate redeemer. I'm going to send the ultimate redeemer. I'm going to send the ultimate redeemer. And he's actually going to have a love relationship with the Gentile nations. And then I'm calling those Gentile nations to go back to Naomi and don't go empty-handed. How might we hasten the day of the Lord? Not going to the Jewish people, not going empty-handed. And then chapter 4, there's only one redeemer. So it's an interesting story. The last, last catch is there was actually a closer relative, a closer kinsman, if you will, to Naomi. And so Boaz knew that. So he knew that they were going to have the first option. So he invites this option. He, he goes to the city gates, would have been kind of where all the activity happens. He gets some witnesses. He says, look, if you want to redeem this piece of land, you need to understand it's going to come with this Gentile woman that you're going to have to marry. So this closest redeemer, this, this closest relative first, this, this guy, he says, well, okay, I'll redeem the land. This will be good. I'd like to purchase this land. And remember, for them, it's not forever. You got a kind of a lease and the year of Jubilee, land turned back to the original owners. It's a brilliant way to, to where you don't have the great disparity among the wealth gap. Um, so at the end of 50 years, if you bought land from someone else, it was kind of like a lease until the year of Jubilee, and then they got their land back. So you didn't have these, if, if your forefathers made a horrible mistake, and they were, maybe they were negligent with the, the inheritance, and then all of a sudden you're on the streets, and then your children are on the streets, and it was like a balancing act. It was a beautiful picture for Israel. It'd be very hard to do in a modern context, but it was a beautiful picture for how Israel was able to maintain their identity as a nation. Uh, and that was the call and part of the law. So this redeemer says, I can redeem it. Uh, Ruth 4 verse 6 then says, well, wait a minute. I, I don't know if I want to marry. I don't want to marry Ruth, a Moabite woman. I, I don't have a relationship with a Gentile. It might, it might cost me my own inheritance. So in Ruth 4 verse 6, this first closest relative says, well, I can't redeem it. I can't redeem it. Can I just tell you? I don't care if you're Jewish watching this or you're a Gentile. You got to understand, there's not just anybody that can redeem you. Uh, your 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 close friends, your 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 relatives. 
Well, I'll, I'll make up for it. There's nobody that can redeem. This guy just, all of a sudden it hit him. I can't do this. I can't, I can't be married to Ruth. I, I can't redeem this. Go ahead, Boaz, you do it. And that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. Ruth 4, verse 14 and 15, catch this. Then the women said to Naomi, well, well wait a minute, what's happened here? Well, something's happened right prior to this. So he redeems the land. He marries Ruth. Naomi now comes in as part of this thing. Now she's going to be provided for. And the things she lost, which were a family, she regains. Now this story even gets better. So through Ruth, she now is going to have what? She's going to have a, she's going to have a grandson. Ruth 4, verse 14 and 15. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord, who has not left you without a redeemer today. So in some ways that Boaz not only redeems the land and redeems Ruth, but now Naomi is in some way redeemed through Ruth. And may his name become famous in Israel, speaking of Boaz. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Powerful picture. Powerful picture of this redemptive, this redemptive picture. Now what we know, and this is amazing, what we know is Naomi becomes the great-great-grandmother. Are you ready for this? King David, who would then be the throne of David on which one day Jesus is the ultimate David who is the throne, sitting on the throne forever and ever. So we have this beautiful picture. Ruth and Boaz have a son. They name him Obed, who would become the father of Jesse, who would become the father of David, who would be the ancestor of the real and ultimate King Jesus, the one who would fulfill every prophecy ever written about the restoration of the world. Folks, you cannot make this stuff up. This story explodes. Now, I can imagine if I was a, a Jewish person today and I, I was reading this, maybe I could draw something out of this, but not the depth that you draw once you understand. I think God was giving us a very clear picture in the Old Testament that we should move in humility. You know, Romans 13, verse 7 says, Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom cu custom is due, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor is due. We have to, look, we have to give honor, folks, where honor is due. The Jewish people deserve honor for they have given us this glorious book. They have brought in the Messiah. They were given the law and the covenants and the glory. There's, there's a certain amount of honor due. And I know some would argue, well, so, you know, a lot of Jewish people there, they don't like what's going on. They, they stand against Christianity and all that. Doesn't matter. The, Paul says the callings of God are irrevocable. He also says this about our own humility. Ephesians 2, 11 through 14. Therefore, remember you, the Gentiles in the flesh, that's me, a non-Jew, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh uh, by human hands. Remember, Jeff, I'll put my name in there. You put your name in there if you're a non-Jew here this morning. Remember, Jeff, that you were at that time separate from Christ. You didn't know Boaz, uh, to, to fill in our story here. 
You were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. You were a foreigner. You didn't, know, you didn't have any access at all. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. You didn't, you didn't understand anything about this and that God was going to restore the earth. You didn't, you didn't have any access to any of this. You were, Jeff, you had no hope and you, Jeff, were without God in the world. But now in Jesus, or in the picture here, in Boaz, this redeemer figure, you were formerly far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the, what? Broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. So now Jews and Gentiles in Jesus, in Christ, have been made one. No, we say, what about the Jews who still don't believe in Jesus? Honor still do there. We are called not to go empty-handed. We're to go back and say, we can do this in great humility. I've received something from the Boaz figure, this Jesus. I have received something. He has allowed me to, not only has he allowed me to glean on the edges, like I've picked up a few principles from Christianity. No, 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 no. He brought me in and married me. And this is, this is the bounty that I've received. Don't go empty-handed. Go back to the Naomi's of the world. Maybe you know some. Go back and just in deference and humility say, look, I, I have failed. I didn't have access to any of this. Not we're the Christians and you guys are the Jews and you killed the Messiah. Are, are you? That is crazy talk. That is not apostolic. It was never Paul's vision. The callings on the nation of Israel are irrevocable. Now just go back and share what you have. You want to fulfill the final super sign? You want to hasten the day of the Lord? Be involved in some way. Whatever your gift is, wherever it is, you don't have to become an evangelist to the Jewish people. But I can tell you right here at Church of the Red Door, one for Israel, I serve on the board, you know, uh, this whole picture, I met Messiah.com, again, put that up on the screen, guys, if you can. Uh, or one for Israel, oneforisrael.org, go and just explore it a little bit. Maybe you have a Jewish friend and say, look, don't go and say, we're right, we're the Christians, you guys are the bad guys. No, 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 no. We had nothing. We were grafted into the commonwealth of Israel, according to Paul in Ephesians 2. Thank you, by the way. I want to give you honor because the, the book that your the Jewish people have paid a heavy price to bring into existence has changed my life. But it's not just the book. It's, what the book, it's who the book points to, and his name is Jesus. Judaism didn't change my life. The law didn't change my life. Jesus changed my life, and he's all over the text, if read properly. So I hope that that is uh, helpful for you today. I hope that you can rest in peace knowing that the world is going nowhere. The world's not going to end until these three super signs are find their fulfillment. At least that's the way I see the scripture. And uh, I hope this gives you great encouragement. So as we close here, uh, I'm going to close in prayer. And then stay tuned because uh, Kathy and Don Bear, some of our precious friends on the executive team, are going to ask just a few questions. If you have a few friends, maybe you have some family, and then they're going to give you a couple of questions that you can ponder and maybe ask to one another, or maybe you have a friend, email them at Church at the Red Door. You just need to check in and say, what do you think about this? Maybe this will inspire some conversation given what we've talked about today. Let me close in prayer before Don and Kathy come. Lord, I thank you for this day. Lord, anything that is not of your spirit, Lord, just let it drop away. I'm praying it would find no resonance in the heart's of the people. But Lord, to the degree that this is a reflection of the gospel and of what Jesus talked about when he talked about the end of all things, Lord, let it just explode in our hearts 
and be transformative in our lives. And Lord, you are the ultimate kinsman redeemer. You're the redeemer of Israel and you're the redeemer of the Gentiles. It was always the plan as we see in the book of Ruth. Thank you, Lord, for changing our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. And I'll give it over to Don and Kathy. Have a great week, Church of the Red Door. We love you so much.